Okay, welcome to another episode of the Map Life Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Williams, Director of Mindset and Performance here at Motivation and Performance Partners and Readiness Camps. And the reason why I began this journey of the Map Life Podcast was to really inspire you, for you out there to hear, to receive the insights, the tools, the concepts, the strategies that the greats use to achieve their greatness. You know, at MAP, we believe that everyone, every single person on the planet has the ability to be great at something. Now, it's not just having that desire, but it's how do I achieve that? What are the particular strategies that I need to use in order to actualize the potential within me? And by listening to the stories of these great performers, whether it's these captivating artists or whether it's the these extraordinary athletes or, again, super successful entrepreneurs, we're going to give you the insights into how they used their particular strategies and then it ignited their excellence. And what we'd really love from this particular experience is for you to be able to take home and experience yourself that transcendence, that actualization of the great potential that you have within you. So from all of us here at MAP, we wish you all the best on your transition from where you are to where you want to be, and we hope you enjoy the show. My friend Marcus, Marcus Hamill, the co-founder of The Sat for Life, is a beacon of inspiration in the realms of meditation, breathwork, and Kriya Yoga. Now, he has a profound dedication to inner growth, and you'll understand this by our conversation, as well as holistic well-being. As Marcus, he has guided countless souls on their transformative journey. His wisdom and compassion is what creates a sacred space where individuals discover the immense power within themselves. And it unlocks the path to inner peace and self-realization, which is something that we're all journeying toward. Now, as a meditation and breath work and Kriya Yoga facilitator, Marcus embodies the essence of spiritual growth and self-discovery, not only within the practice, but in every aspect of his life. And he lights the way for those seeking a deeper connection with their true self. So I'm really inspired and excited to be bringing you this conversation with my friend, my man, Marcus Hamill. Okay, guys. For season two, as you guys know, I'm always partnering with the best brands that are on the market, brands that we here at MAP and Readiness Camps truly believe in. And I'm super stoked that uh, we are continuing our partnership with Project Blank, an eco-friendly wetsuit, hardware, and lifestyle brand that is founded on conscious, honest decisions and blends quality with affordability and environmentally considered products. Now, as they say over at PB, the only footprint we want to leave is on the sand. So when you purchase from Project Blank's epic range of products, and if you use the code MAPLIFE, M-A-P-P-L-I-F-E, at checkout, you're not only assured that your choices are environmentally conscious and friendly, as you'll already be contributing to their charity partners, uh, Ecology Forests, Ecology Climate Projects, and the award-winning Seabin, and Project Blank have given us, and by us, that means you, 20% of every order to distribute to our charities of choice. And during the winter, our charity of choice is Protect Our Winters, which is a collective of 
activists from around the world supporting and believing that nature needs our help. Now, obviously, our playgrounds being the surf, being the mountains that we love to to spend and ride our time in, um, these are the parts of the planet that require us to really stand up for them. And Protect Our Winters is doing that across the planet. So they're our charity of choice during our winter season. And as we said, 20% of every order on the Project Blank website using the code MAPLIFE gives 20% of that directed straight to protect our winters. So go over there, check out the website at www.projectblank.com.au and buy something eco and epic for your next adventure outside. Do good, feel good, go blank. Okay, Hybration are back for another season of the Map Life podcast, and we're stoked to continue promoting their growing range of super high quality and highly potent medicinal mushroom-based products. Cacao elixir powders, mushroom extracts, and ceremonial cacao are fast becoming people's drink of choice when they're taking a break from coffee or when they just want to upgrade the quality of their cup. All killer, no filler. Hybration Organics are hands down the best quality and most flavorsome medicinal mushroom products on the market. And that's why MAP loves them. They're honest, they're truthful, influential, and essential for upgrading your body at a cellular level. In order to get your hands on as much as you can, Head over to thehybrationorganics.com.au. That's H-I-G-H-B-R-A-T-I-O-N, hybrationorganics.com.au. Throw in the code MAPLIFE at checkout and you'll get 20% off anything and everything you buy. So upgrade your performance today by looking after your physiology through Hybration Organics. Welcome to Marcus Hamill of the Sattva Life on the podcast for the first time and hopefully not the last because he's a man of absolute a depth of knowledge that we're going to try and extract a little bit from that today. We're going to be talking a lot about alignment and intuition, deeply focused on purpose. I love purpose and we're going to be talking a lot about that. But a little bit about Marcus is that he's come from a background like myself in, in creativity. He was a director under high pressure, big budgets, film and commercials. So I might start there. What were some of the great uh, experiences that you had, whether it was in a team environment, whether it was on a specific job? Can you recall anything that where you were just completely and utterly in awe of what you were what you were doing in the director role? You know, the first thing that popped into mind was quitting. <laughs> the best thing I did was I remember I remember knocking back the first job when I first started teaching meditation. The feeling of saying no and actually going in the direction of what I wanted to do was the first thing that popped into mind when you said that. But if we go back to the actual work and prior to that, I mean, I was really kind of fortunate. I think a run that I got on for a while that was um, very lucky, I guess, in many ways was with Red Bull. And we we did an initial motocross commercial with them down in in Melbourne where we trucked in like, I think, 30 semi-trailers full of dirt, built a whole kind of jump arena inside Vodafone Arena and we shot it was in the early days of that um you know time splice like the matrix that that kind yeah. of that technology and we shot with you know I can't remember exactly that even the um technology of it I think we had like 30 cameras on a rig 35 mil cameras and you know these the top motocross guys in the world doing backflips and all that sort of stuff 
And um, from there, the creative director from Austria kind of got hold of us and they started flying us to Europe on jobs. Like I think we were going three or four times a year for a few years and shooting like all sorts of extreme sports, um, air race there. There, um, did you ever see Air Race? It was yeah, like, yeah. yeah, crazy. Yeah, and so um, we we did a bunch of that stuff for a while. So I kind of became known as like the action guy, even though I never watched an action film in my life. Didn't care anything about motocross or cars or anything, but I kind of somehow fell into that. Is, is that artistic? I mean, because when I think of you know, as you said, almost like the ramping and slowing down and the artistic kind of when things slow down, it becomes so much more poetic, especially in movement sport. Yeah. So I wonder. You know, as you said, you didn't come from an extreme sports background, but at the same time, do you believe you have a really good eye for, I guess, the arts and 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 movement? Yeah, look, I guess I did have kind of a background in that from my surfing as well. So I, it's just that I didn't care about motorized things. <laughs> you know, I like I was really into snowboarding and surfing and things. So I kind of had an eye for sport for sure. And yeah, I did. I did kind of like the idea of being bringing an artistic kind of eye to those sort of areas, which I think people are doing, you know, incredibly now, but maybe back then it was a little bit newer. It's funny because it, it, I fell in love with the the art of the audio and visual medium as a union. I don't think there's a more emotional experience that you can evoke from somebody, especially when they're um, watching something, than if you pair music that is perfect for the visual that you're watching. And I I remember specifically watching the cricket, funnily enough, one day when they were doing the slow-mo on the ball coming through and they had this classical music playing. And it just I something went off in my head and I was like, I'm really feeling something here. And I turned the music off, like just the sound of the of the TV and just watched the cricket ball. And it was I was like, oh it's just a slow-mo cricket ball. Mm. But getting that that union, that marriage perfectly, it takes it to a new emotional level. And as you were saying, if you can do that with high-performance energetic sports, you know, extreme sports, and pairing it with really great visual, and then you've got that music on top of that that can play, it's it's a really emotional experience for people in a, in a very positive way. It can really evoke some of the positive inspiration. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, this is, I guess that's what I loved about filmmaking what I didn't love so much was that you're usually doing it for brands and a lot of the time you didn't really connect and feel aligned with the brand. So, you know, you can convince yourself that you're an artist, but essentially if you're working in the commercial space, I used to kind of, in my more honest moments with myself, I'd be like, yeah, I'm a glorified salesman with an artistic flair. <laughs> but, you know, that's, um, I, I think getting back to your original question, aside from those jobs, the thing that I loved the most was making my own short films where I work, was working for myself. Yeah, because I was going to tap in there because it sounds like, and I believe most directors who have done a lot of commercial work who have that artistic eye potentially become somewhat suffocated by the industry because they're always being told what to do, how to do it. And then you, when you sense that in you, you have to break free. You have to get out and, as you said, shoot a short, write a short, do a feature. Was there any specific projects for you that, because I know you were involved with a feature that nearly got over the line and it didn't, you guys didn't go ahead with it, but there was a short, I remember that surfing short that you, I think that you directed and we won, did it. We won did some a, awards. We, we actually won some awards, uh, a number of awards for a film that we shot in the Cook Islands, which was a really interesting project. So that was a screenwriting project we did. I did with Joel Russell, who I think's done some work with you. And Joel, uh, Joel and I had this idea. It was, it was a really cool idea actually run by a, a New Zealand producer, Stan Wolfman, and he, Wolfgram, sorry, and he 
had a deep connection with the Cook Islands and he was trying to kind of create a opportunity for the Cook Islands to be like this kind of um, outpost for New Zealand and Australian filmmaking. And so he created this screenwriting competition they put out all around the world and they chose six films, six winners to go and actually make their films in the Cook Islands. But the catch was you had to use local cast, which of course there was none, it was just real people. Um, you could bring a, a few people, like your key, your DOP and a couple of key crew, but then everyone else in the crew had to be trained, you had to train up locals. And we won. We won the screenwriting competition. So we won a, one of six films and we went and made a film there, which was really amazing. It's actually, you know, it's it, it ended, up, ended up winning um, Best Screenplay at St Kilda Film Festival and it was an amazing experience just working with these incredible locals in the Cook Islands. Very challenging, incredibly challenging because no one had any experience. And the, one of the other f- filmmakers that won were the Stone Brothers, their famous Hollywood action director, director and producer team. They came in about a month and a half before us, like they weren't meant to be there. They just came early on their own bat and they just took up every resource on the island. They All the lights, everything, they became friends with the Prime Minister. They just totally stole the show and we got there and there was nothing left. They were meant, it was meant to be a small crew. They had a, like a cast of about a 1,000 people there working for them. Yeah, they did. They literally did. They had everything. It was like this huge film and we were just making this, you know, cute little comedy in the background. And you got to express your art, art, artistry in those moments, yet as you mentioned prior to being recorded on the, on the podcast here, that something was still missing. And as I said, for a creative artist like yourself, you know, can you pull the pieces apart or pull it apart and find out what, what was missing in that moment and how did you then go and find it? So I think what was missing essentially was purpose for me. I, I never felt really aligned with you know, I mean, you have to be realistic, right? Like you're creating ads. Um, I loved the process of filmmaking, but if I was really honest with myself, I didn't love the job. I didn't really feel in the depth of my being that I was doing anything of use to anyone. In fact, you know, if I was, when I was in my more kind of honest moments, I was probably thinking I'm actually doing a lot of damage, you know, creating, like selling, selling brands that you just have no alignment with. Um, selling, you know, crap food to kids or, you know, whatever, all that sort of stuff. And so I think there was there was a hell of a lot of pressure in that job. And I think to do it and to really succeed, you have to be all in like anything like any, in life. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think I was ever all in. I don't think it was ever me. And so how did I get out of it? Well, kind of through grace, actually, through um, stress and a massive panic attack <laughs> and then finding my way to meditation after that. And then the journey just kind of unfolded. Wow. So, and I was talking to, funny enough, uh, this morning, I had a catch up with Tora Bright. We were um, tuning in, have a coffee, just talking about how the body or the subconscious will manifest a situation if you're, if it wants to stop, it'll make you stop one way or another. Whether it's just going to shut down on the ability to deal with stress and cause a panic attack or anxiety or manifest an injury, whatever it might be, if you're subconsciously not aligned with the conscious and you're not, those aren't aligned with actually your purpose, then something's going to give. And for you, it became a panic attack. Can you, I mean, I haven't experienced one, but I know of many people that have. Can you explain what that's like? It was terrifying. By its very nature, it's terrifying. I mean, that's what you're in. You're in this highest state of fear. I, I wouldn't have even self-reported as being stressed. If you asked me at the time if I was stressed, I didn't even think I was stressed. It was so normalised in my system for my system to be just totally in that in that kind of sympathetic state. You know, I, at the time I had 
young children and, you know, the pressures of all of that. And that job was stressful. I mean, you, you're stressed when you're working, you're stressed when you're not. It's like being an actor, you know, you're out of work half the year. You're pitching on jobs all the time. You know, some of them you think this will be the job that makes my career and then you lose it at the last step. A lot of the time you're pitching, you know, you're pitching against at least three companies, maybe five, um, you know, and then you lose the job. Some, obviously sometimes you win them, you're on the highs of winning them, the lows of losing them. You know, I guess at that stage of my life I had mistakenly invested a lot of my kind of identity and self-worth and self-belief around my successes in that career as well. And so- well, as a creative, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but most creatives require external validation for their worth or their value, right? Most people do. Right, right. And what, and I know what we're going to get to with what you're doing now, but it's coming back home to fill the hole to make sure that that is as solid as possible, that you're in complete alignment, which I love that word. When I use it a lot with MAP and the, and the program that I'm running with the, the athletes. Alignment is basically how we can tap into flow state, mm-hmm. right? So, again, sorry to interrupt, but, yeah, continue. Yeah, so totally agree with what you're saying. And, <laughs> and so in terms of, you know, how that unfolded, I was just, it was actually after my, it was a couple of days after my 40th birthday and you know, so you could sort of say it was like some sort of form of midlife crisis, although I think 40 is too early for the midlife these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but for you. I, I just really, um, I went to bed one night. I remember it was a Monday night. I went to bed. It was night like any other. And just at that moment that I was falling asleep, that kind of transition between wake and sleep, I just, I don't know, I felt like someone had shoved adrenaline into my heart. I just launched kind of bolt upright on my bed. I was shaking. I couldn't breathe. And so my it wasn't in a response to any particular external, specific external pressure. It was just this kind of bubbling of a nervous system that was out of balance and it just went, it just tipped over the edge. And like a cup, almost feeling, feeling, feeling like low grade stress, low grade stress. It gets to the top and then some one drop and it totally. And we had, we get the same with injuries, right? Like the body can be like that as well. It doesn't, and, and I'd say more often than not, it's not trauma. It, it's just, uh, it's just a, uh, uh, kind of general lifestyle, you know, not looking after yourself, not, you know, not having good energetic and good, um, you know, consciousness hygiene and, and good physical health. And, and, you know, before you know it for no reason whatsoever, except for all reasons, because of you're living in a certain way, no specific reason that's tangible in that moment. And then you tip over the edge. And so that night was horrific for me. I was, I was so scared. I felt like I'd lost my mind. It was a very, strange kind of out-of-body experience mm-hmm. and uh, and this is something I've come to realize from working with students with anxiety it's quite common to have that feeling but for me it was weird because the feeling came on before before the um, panic attack it was weird it usually comes on as part of the panic attack but the, it was almost like it was that feeling that gave me the panic attack it was this kind of disassociated feeling where I felt really kind of expanded and out of my body the strange thing was in part you know just um the irony of how it links to my future journey is I hadn't really meditated much before at all. I'd done a little bit of practice in my early 20s and yoga and things, and I'd been interested in it, but I'd never found a teacher or any kind of technique. And that night as I was in my panic attack, and I didn't even really know I was having a panic attack. I didn't know what it was. I'd never experienced it before. I just knew I wasn't in a good state. All I could think to do was breathe. I was like, okay, I need to breathe and sort of meditate. And so I was laying there and I was 
deep breathing deeply. And then I started feeling so relaxed. I think I went into my first really deep meditative state that I freaked out and thought I was dying. (laughs) And then I just went straight back into my panic attack again and it kind of lasted all night. And that really started my journey because, you know, I got up that morning and I was like, what the hell was that? And I started kind of getting on Dr. Google and I was like, all right, I had a panic attack. That makes sense. What do you do about that? And and meditation had been kind of circling around me at that time. There'd been a lot of signs when I look back on it, you know, there was opportunities there. And I reckon within two weeks from there, I was meditating. I'd studied with Gary and I was meditating with Gary Goro and I was meditating. And that was, um, you know, that was the start of a whole new life journey. Yeah. I mean, that's so much to take in. Was that moment when you shot up out of bed, the adrenaline shot, you know, almost like the Pulp Fiction moment. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Is it similar? You know, when you go into those um, sleep, half sleep states, I can't remember what they're called. Like sleep paralysis. Paralysis, yeah. where instead of shooting up, you kind of want to shoot up, but you can't because you're super tired. Potentially your 40th birthday, three days before, you might add a glass of red wine or, or a thousand or something. Yeah. Um, so super tired again, but your nervous system was already cooking low grade. So vibrating at this level and then all of a sudden it just got pushed and then yours went to a position where you kind of shot up. Mm. I mean, that is that is a gnarly sense of, as you said, that outer body. And then what was it, your surf training? I mean, because you do a lot of big wave stuff. You've surfed all your life. In that moment where it went crisis, what made you think breath? It certainly wasn't training because I hadn't really done any breath work at that stage at all. All that came later. It was intuition. It was just a, it was, there was an access point in that, in that kind of change of consciousness and in that state, I don't know, it opened me up to just intuitively know that that was what I was meant to do. And that's why I say it was grace. I really feel like, you know, you talked before about Torah and the the subconscious, that's what it was. It was a deep message from my subconscious just telling me, okay, you're not reading the signs, you're not in alignment, something traumatic has to happen. Mm. And so... It just feels like when you look back on it now, I just I look back on that moment with so much gratitude for the for the capacity of, you know, my deeper knowing to just shake me out of my kind of sleep state. It's funny, Tora said the exact same thing that she looks back on that the concussion that she had as something she's grateful for now because it it made her stop, it made her rethink and realign. And it's the same thing. Most people who have serious injuries and a panic attack like that, you know, that's a serious injury in my inverted commas, that it causes such a shift. And a lot of people suffocate and continue down that highway and just grind themselves into a heart attack or something that's more dramatic, you know, potentially death. But when you listen to it and you say to yourself and you said, it just feels right, I need to realign somewhere. How, how do you go from that space of, you know, you're doing really well in the creative space, you know, you're affording places in beautiful parts of the world, you're traveling the beautiful parts of the world. And this thing is asked you to change all that, chuck that away and do something else. How do you transition and get your head around that, especially when you've got to support a family? And a- yeah, well, look, you know, I'd probably like make it seem like that happened at that moment, but actually what happened first was connecting to myself and really coming back home and, and kind of getting this deeper understanding of who I was and what I needed. And so in that process, I was still directing and I was still directing for a number of years, even after I started teaching. So like, if you look at the timeline of that history, it was, I learned to meditate kind of two weeks after that happened. And then I kind of got deeply into that as a student. And then, you know, within three years I was teaching, but even when I started teaching, I was still directing for quite a long time. 
what happened ultimately was I started to enjoy the job because I was now meditating. I really enjoyed the creative process. I feel like it, it free, you know, you know, as a creative, what's the, the biggest obstacle to creativity is stress. If you've got a stressed mind, you've got no access what to, whatsoever to your intuition and your deeper creative flow. Like all, I would argue that all of the best creative ideas are not yours. You don't own them. They flow through you and you're a conduit and your particular life skills and talent will frame that idea in a unique way, but that idea is not yours. If so long as the idea comes from your mind, it's always going to be somewhat shallow. And so I found it really opened opened up my creative channels. I found that and they're deep I, too, aren't they? They are. Well, yeah. they're, they're infinite, actually, yeah. yes, because we're connected agreed. to life, to the creative impulse of the universe. I mean, you look around you; the whole it's infinite. It's infinitely creating. And so, if we can tap into even any of that, then the resource never runs dry. And we're given that. You know, we talk about the heart, the mind, the soul. Our soul being that space of of the eternal flame, you know, the spark that's in there that never runs out, the energy system, you can tap into it, you'll never feel tired. You can always tap in. And if you can drop into that moment, inspiration is just a breath of life, right, From or a gift from the deity, whether it's God, the universe, creation, whatever, super conscious. And in that moment, it breathes air into that flame and it, whoosh, and it makes it come a, a lot more alive. And the more you've got you're placed, your consciousness or your attention or whatever you want to call it is placed on that flame. Like you said, that's kind of the never-ending creative flow that you can always have and, and enjoy, especially with your life. And then you've got that open channel from the soul through the heart and through the mind and up into that connection, which is that flow state. So what you're saying is rather than live top down and direct life from the mind, it's direct life from the bottom up. And then the important thing becomes, you know, if we're looking at it from the creativity, intuition, it's all kind of the same flow, the, the, the same process. The important thing becomes the capacity to take that step because what I feel happens is these kind of creative impulses will come through and because we're talking about, you know, if you're talking about this collective unconscious, it's coming through in various parts of that collective unconscious. It's not just through you. So if you don't take a step, someone else does. And this is that thing you notice, like you come up with an idea and all of a sudden that idea appears in three other places around the world. And so it becomes really important to, to have the capacity to take that first step, even if you don't really know where that vision's heading. Um, and then, you know, the path will start to unfold as like you step. But if we wait to, yeah, if we wait to know what it looks like, by the time we wait, someone else will have done it. Yeah, I've had a, and you know Stephen Hunt, and I've had a, and I've spoken to him about this, but I've had a, a similar thing happen twice with him where I've, I had a, an idea and then looked to execute it, pulled back, and then at the same time it would seem he was doing the, ex, the exact same thing over here. I mean, he's an exceptional director. He sure is. He's quite a talent. And just a visionary, creative, and downright legend, good man. And then there was this other thing that popped up later on when he was in New York and I was like, man, I had that idea. But it takes someone like, as you said, Stefan, who puts the foot in front of the other, gets on that road to create it that creates it. Not saying that I would have created it like him. He's, he's one of a kind and a pretty amazing, uh, as I said, creative man. But Well, that's what I mean though because the ideas will come, they come up but then they're, they're moulded by your particular talents and life skill and so they'll always be different but the actual idea comes from something deeper than you. Yeah. Great, and that and that tapping in, and how important then? My part one of the question is how important is tapping into that intuition, and number two is how do you do more of that these days as you as an entity? It's vitally important if you want to live a good life. I think. I mean, put it this way: if you, I mean, this is a we could 
talk for the rest of the podcast on this, so I'll try and keep it short. No, but if you, I love it. If you are living from your mind, your mind is nothing but an accumulation of your past experiences, your conditioning, your social conditioning, your cultural conditioning, your childhood traumas, all of this stuff. You will only continue to produce a different version of the same version of yourself, different you know, maybe different person, same relationship problems, different job, same job problems. You're living from your past. You're just, you're living in a cycle of the ever repeating known. So the only way out of that is to be tapped in deeper. This is what, do you know the concept of Dharma? Yes. Yeah. So Dharma, you know, it's often misinterpreted a little bit in the West, like all oversimplified, you know, as purpose. Purpose is really important, but it Depends how we define it, you know, from a, from a deeper kind of yoga Vedantic point of view, Dharma has, it's kind of like a, tri- you can imagine a triangle, it's a triangle of Dharma. I'm sure this will fit in somewhat into sure does. your mapping. <laughs> so at the, the base of that, if we look at purpose, it's not just, because a lot of people in the West think about their purpose as their job, their career, their sport, whatever that is, you know, artist, um, snowboarder, creative, whatever. This is one manifestation of it, but it's missing the whole baseline. So the baseline of Dharma from a Yoga Vedantic point of view is, is evolution. We are here as a soul, as a human being on this human journey to evolve, to become the, our highest potential as, as a soul. And so how do we do it? How do we tap deeper in? And how am I doing that? Through practice. You know, this is what the practice of meditation is about, what the practice of all of these other, you know, this integrated practice of yoga, breathwork, kriya, asana, meditation, wisdom, all of it, this whole integrated practice is what gives you access to your true self beyond your mind, beyond your conditioning. This is what a transcendent meditation practice is. It's an experience. It's a daily experience of yourself before your mind or outside of your mind yourself as pure awareness, pure consciousness, tapped into creative source before the story because otherwise people are just living in the story and then nothing changes. So the baseline of Dharma is that, is evolution. The second step of Dharma is what am I bringing as what's my highest purpose in this moment? So people are looking for purpose like some sort of future thing, but your life is your purpose. And so how am I living my life in every moment? How am I bringing the best version of myself, my highest evolutionary self? How am I uplifting this moment? What is, and not from an ego point of view, what is nature? What is life asking of me? What is the highest value I could bring to life in this moment? And then from there, that can manifest as purpose of career, you know, job, sport, whatever. But if we're focused purely just on career and some future thing as our purpose, it's just an ego state. Just and, and hap- it's this idea that happiness will exist when I achieve that, but it only ever exists now. Yeah, that's yeah. You, you get on the first mountain, second mountain theory on that too, which is epic. And for those who you, we're not going to be able to see this, but you can hear it. But my hands were pumping in the air. <laughs> I was just singing it, Marcus. I, I'm absolutely in in complete agreement with everything you said. And it, I know that because I feel it. Every time someone says something that I I truly believe, and when I say believe, it's not a mind belief, it's a soul belief. You, I get tingles or I know it's intuitively coming when I'm in a session with a client. If I feel, you know, the tingle on the body, it's like I know this is right because I just felt it. But the mind, in my opinion, doesn't create that. It's that, as I said, it's that alignment that creates that when everything, it's almost like when the, 
you know, the pieces of the jigsaw fit and it, and it you know, creates a, a much more beautiful picture or it just everything clicks in, key in the lock, however you want to metaphorically say it. But in, t- in terms of that evolutionary purpose, I'm reading a book at the moment, um, Death by Sadhguru, and he talks about the mind being just memories, right? And as you said, conditioning, uh, limitations, however you've been raised, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of practicing to get out of that mind, because most people think that if I step away from this thing, you know, it's, it's preserving me, it's allowing me to stay safe. Most people see going into the heart as, you know, the vulnerability of moving down into the soul as something that's weak, as something that isn't um, going to serve me. It is going to serve my, my purpose is to do like, as we said, that ego-based stuff. How would you coach or how would you encourage someone to go from the top down rather than living from the top down and start directing from the the bottom or the soul up? Well, for one thing, I'd say that most people, it's even more than that, most people actually think they are their mind. And so it's terrifying to them to 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 even go there, to even take that step of of uh, experiencing yourself outside of your thoughts. We're so addicted to our patterns of thinking. This is why, you know, like people will recreate, you know, traumatic childhood experiences, like say traumatic, um, you know, insecure or unstable kind of attachment bonding in childhood will be recreated in all of their future relationships until they have the the insight to see that that's going on and, and you know and find their way through that that we will actually recreate these things because that biochemistry in the body is familiar to us even though it's stress it's addictive because we feel safe within the context of a familiar biochemistry in the body and the same with our thought patterns where we feel safe within this kind of these looping thoughts you know like there's people like there's studies showing, saying that we have around 95% of the same thoughts today that we had yesterday and the day before so we're we're held in these deep mental holding patterns it's familiar therefore it feels safe you know this is the role of comfort the, of zone the ego. known unknown yeah. totally so it's not something you can i don't think it's something you can coach someone to do you have to train them in techniques that do it <laughs> because if you if you stay if you're kind of coaching on the level of the mind i mean you can guide all that stuff after they've got a practice but if they're not having that fundamental experience of meeting themselves outside of their mind meeting themselves in that field of pure consciousness through a practice then we're still kind of operating on the level of the mind and then it's just the mind kind of talking about it it's not actually experiencing it so for me i'd say a fundamental practice would be to learn how to meditate and then you know all of these other practices kind of layer on top of that breath work yoga you know yoga as we know it is asana but yoga is actually the whole thing anyway meditation kriya breath work it's all yoga but you know eating well engaging the services of a coach or a mentor all of these things are really useful but it's paramount i i i don't want to sound sound evangelistic about this but i think that it's it's kind of essential for a sane life to be able to drop out of your thoughts what we're essentially creating through a practice like that is the capacity to witness your thoughts rather than be in them and so if you're in your thoughts you you know you 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 can't change anything so in the buddhist traditions they talk about you know like they'll ask you if you think you're your thoughts is that kind of saying like if you think you're your thoughts what were you before that thought popped into your mind and what are you after that thought's gone? And all it's such a simple thing, but you sit with that for a little while and all of a sudden you realise there's actually some a part of me Space. in here that's witnessing it all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I'm talking with um, with TC, Tom Carroll, who's I know you're working with at the moment, about a, a similar 
I guess, frame of mind in terms of if you're just in the mind, it's action, reaction, reaction, reaction. You're just reacting to things, the external triggers, and your mind is kind of just just reacting. But step one, meditation, and in the Stoic uh, philosophy, they believe there's a space between action and reaction for freedom of choice or judgment so that your reaction is a lot more conscious or purposeful or have whatever word you want to emplace there. And meditation the more you meditate, the deeper you practice, the the wider the space between. It's almost like the matrix, yeah. you know, when it's like Morpheus and and it got slow, I can figure this out here and then come back in and react. And then I, I believe there's an opportunity in the fourth step for reflection and the and the cycle continues. But the the meditation practice itself is it's like you said, it's like training anything. You most people can't sit down and expect themselves to be Buddha. <laughs> in one go. It's practice, you know, it might be three minutes, five minutes, seven minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes in a way that is, is comfortable to them. I know some people, they, they find it hard to sit still. So I encourage them to go on a walking meditation in nature where they're with themselves or doing other forms of meditation just to get themselves into the mind and the habit of training, as you said, to get out of the mind and into the body. Would that be something that you'd encourage as well? Yeah. I mean, look, we come I, I come at this thing from a very kind of integrated practice. So for sure, I mean, it, you want to have the capacity as a teacher or a coach to be able to meet people where they're at. And so certain people will need to get ground back into the body before they can take that next step. But ultimately, I would be encouraging people eventually to get to a meditation practice that's, say, say if you look at meditation, it's not kind of true that they're all the same and and so a lot of people have this idea that I can't meditate because they've you know learned say mindfulness a focus technique where you're focusing on your breath like your life depends on it and every time your mind wanders you're coming back and so I, I don't say any of this to put down other techniques or anything they're actually all amazing but you need to understand it's useful to understand anyway that they train different things so like a focus technique trains focus amazing if you're working with athletes you know, in a cor- people in corporate space, any sort of high achievers, like for any of us, the capacity to concentrate and focus is a really useful integral skill, but it's not a baseline practice. If you, you've got to think of it in terms of like training as well, like physical training, there's sort of baseline practices and then there's more things that we nuance, layer yeah, and nuance out from that. And so from a yoga Vedantic point of view, the baseline meditation practice is a transcendent practice. And these are mantra-based practices. So, you know, the word mantra can be loosely defined as a, a mind vehicle. It actually more specifically means mind, heart, expansion. Like manas, yes. manas means mind and heart and tra is expansion. So a mantra is mind and heart expansion, but it's often defined in the West as a, mind, a mental uh, vehicle to travel from the surface level of the mind into the the deeper experience of consciousness. So these mantra-based practices become a foundation practice that we do daily, ideally twice daily for, you know, roughly 20 to 30 minutes, so that you're having this experience of, of yourself outside of the mind, yourself as the witness of your thoughts, starting to create that that space between you and your conditioned mind. And then all those other practices you layer on top, focused breath work and different things to, to train the mind. But we want to be able to ideally experience ourselves out of the mind. Otherwise we're always caught in those mental loops in some way. So, and this is something that I'm really encouraged by, as you said, meet someone where they are, get them to be engaged with the process of the, or the idea of meditation, committing time to a practice, you know, whether it be 30 minute walk, 10 minutes on the lounge, whatever it might be, and getting to a point where they 
that the time commitment is something they look forward to. Mm-hmm. And then when they found that they're engaged with the process, look to engage or look to encourage a baseline mantra practice. That's- well, some people who want to just jump straight in at that as well. I mean, that's sure. like most people that I teach jump straight in at that and then you go the other way. But, you know, if you're working with someone who's, I don't know, just completely out of their body, highly anxious, not connected at all, then you might want to come in through breath or come in through walking meditations. So I asana you know, yoga practices and asana practices also often a step into these de- this deeper work as well, even though it's as part of the uh, more traditional integrated practice, it's just always been part of, you know, one of the arms of yoga. But for the West, it's often a starting point because people are, you know, in this meditative flow state whilst moving their bodies. There's more distraction, more to fo- something else to focus on other than being with yourself. Because most people are in terrible fear of being with themselves. I mean, you just got to have a look at the cafe when someone's ordering a coffee, like people can't even sit for two minutes without looking at their phones because they just need a distraction. So we're training people to kind of just to slow down and be with themselves, you know, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, all creativity, all good ideas come from a space, like creating space. If you don't create space, then we just are in that loop you're talking about, that, you know, just reaction. And when you say when you say space, to me, I mean, visually I'm getting the mantra being the heart and mind expander. It's almost like the the vagal nerve almost where the super highway of nerves, it's kind of like the expander being that it pulls it apart enough so that there's a big enough gap for inspiration to get into the soul, spark that flame. Whereas as you said, if you're not, if you're not expanding and it's suffocating, it just closes that, that ability off to get into that deeper place and you stay in the mind. And as you said, the monkey mind can play all kinds of havoc. And as you understand, like when you were 20, 25, you know, high-performing athletes, you know, people that are playing in front of 10,000 people, whatever it might be, a lot of them aren't used to, you know, having to sit and spend time and see that kind of uh, investment as something that's going to help them progress because it's always been about skill-based, you know, go, go, go. The harder I work, uh, the the better I get. A lot of the the high performers are, are sort of, I, I, you know what I'm saying, they're, they're quite highly strung at that level because they've been trained that way. And it, and what we're encouraging here is guys and anyone in the audience who are listening and um, are finding themselves that they are performing at a high level, trying to understand, as you said, separating yourself from the thoughts that you have, potentially checking in with yourself in terms of what does the mind-body connection feel like? Do I feel aligned? And when we say aligned, it's one line from mind heart and soul that we feel in the straight line so we can tap in. And if it feels a little bit misaligned, as Marcus said, when he was in that state of uh, before the panic attack, check in because if you can get it before the panic attack and start doing things for prevention rather than cure, this is the business that we're both in. And this is where we're going to leap into now because the Sattva life is a way of life, right? And this is the thing about diets. I don't think diets work. Lifestyle choices work. You know, you've got to see what you choose as your diet. It's not a diet. It's a lifestyle. You know, and I think that's the same thing. What I love about what you guys are promoting with the Sattva life and living and breathing and doing and being is that it is a complete way of life, like yoga, as you said before. So I'd love you to explain the the concepts, the the living that is the Sattva life so that the audience can kind of get a bit of a deeper insight into you and your partner and, and you know, what you're trying to bring to, to the community. Yeah. So 
Cass and I launched the Sup for Life and it's still evolving and I don't even really know where it's going. We've never known where it's going. And so this kind of, I guess, will give you a little bit of an insight into how we operate and what we're talking about earlier about intuition is we've never had a plan. So it kind of freaks people out. Like we don't have a business plan. We don't have like goals. Our goal is all we've ever done since the start is be guided We've just tapped into that kind of deep intuition. When we have a creative idea, if it feels right, we go for it without understanding why we're doing it. We'll just take that step and the whole thing has grown and it's been incredible to sort of facilitate and it's really kind of amazing because it doesn't feel like we own it. It just feels like it's been kind of flowing through Cass and I and we're just somehow being gifted this this kind of creative flow and the whole the whole kind of community and everything's grown out of that. I guess all we've really, like what it's really about is teaching the practices that have been so transformational in our life. That's really the only kind of underlying kind of mission of what we do. Um, but with this understanding that, that you know, it's it's yoga for, for modern life, that, you know, we live in this particular age in the West and it's like how is this relevant to life and it's all about, really empowering people to be the best version of the self, of their selves, whatever that looks like, whatever the good life looks like for them, you know, not, not to replicate our life, but to understand that at the deepest level, we're here to evolve. And these practices and this wisdom is all about tapping you into that. And then how that expresses through the individual is, is entirely unique. So the, the offering, you know, is uh, I guess our baseline offering is learn to meditate courses, but we teach breath work and career and we run a lot of retreats and we run teacher training programs. Um, we do all sorts of stuff and it's always evolving, always changing, lots of creative. We do a lot of mentoring as well. And then we've just got, you know, whatever creativity happens to be flowing through us where Thanks to COVID, you know, like one of the gifts that came out of out of COVID was kind of for many of us was kind of uh, shifting beyond our little community and you know through these through the the magic of of Zoom and these microphones. <laughs> so yeah, so it's it's constantly changing. I've got no idea what it's going to look like in a year's time, never alone in five years' time, but um, it's a beautiful space to be in. Okay, guys and girls, just a quick break in the show to let you guys know of our new. Map Life podcast sponsor, Pro Vitality. Now, if you want to get across and check out Pro Vitality, you will be amazed at what's available there for you guys. With a 5% discount at the checkout using the Map Life code M A P L I F E, Pilates machines, fitness machines, infrared saunas, traditional saunas, ice baths, outdoor showers, you name it. You need it for your health and wellness. It is there to pick up with a 5% discount thanks to the Pro Vitality team whose values, and this is one of the big things I love about this crew, integrity, relationships, and service. And again, three essential pillars when it comes to doing great business. So if you share both myself and George from Pro Vitality's passion for living an active and healthy lifestyle, head to provitality.com.au. And again, all your needs will be serviced with great integrity and an incredible relationship. Go and get some. Enjoy your day. Back to the show. You speak about the community and, you know, very much that Cass and yourself are, are very much loved in the community and that all comes down to people aligning with your values, you know. Obviously, as you said, it's not about copying your life. It's just about uh, aligning with other human beings, connecting with other human beings on a value level. And I think there's a lot of people in the community that aspire and are inspired 
by the way that you express your values together and individually. And I think that's the reason why the business feels so you guys is because there's so much of you in the in the business and the way it's expressed. Like you said, you've just become a vessel for this expression, almost like a waterfall, you know, it's just coming through you and then explodes into the community. Now with the beauty of uh, technology, it can it can widen the reach. And I would definitely encourage anyone out there to check that out, that course, if you're not in obviously on the northern beaches of New South Wales, but it feels like everyone's coming up here at the moment. But um, if you're not, Obviously, we'll tune in and get the uh, get the the website ready for you to check it out. But what really all also highlighted for me then is not just just values was the the trust and the faith that you have that it will all work out because it's the the responsibility isn't necessarily on you because it's coming through you. That's the beautiful thing about about taking that that step of yeah of, of really opening up to trust is that it actually relieves you of of that kind of fear of that responsibility because you it's not an ego based thing you know as long as we're coming at it from our mind and our ego and what it can do for us then then there's so much to lose but when you just kind of when you're falling more into line of like the question of like in terms of purpose is what does life want from me right now then it's not really it's not personal and so you just kind of flow with it flow totally and it, that's and again that waterfall metaphor for me it felt like very fluent and it feels very fluent and I mean, if you think about it, and, and I'm talking to the audience here about how lovely that feels to it, it would be just to be in flow with life, where it wants you to take, almost surrendering to its direction rather than you trying to, you know, direct the course of a river that's already flowing. You're kind of up against it. Well, this is, yeah, I mean, absolutely. This is the thing, right? Like my my, my teacher, Anand, Anand Maratri, says, you know, if you've you've got that you've got like a couple of choices you as life presents itself you either you know if you can change it so there's something that in your life that doesn't feel right if you can change it change it fully if you can't accept it fully anything else in between is insanity and so this is that state of surrender which is often you know misunderstood i think with with kind of giving up it's not about giving up it's about accepting the isness of isness like rather all of our pain and suffering well, maybe not all of our pain. I mean, pain's inevitable, as they say, suffering's not. <laughs> um, so all of our suffering comes from resistance, from resisting life as it's actually showing up. And this is like bringing our own, you know, ego-based limited identity and conditioned mind to every situation in life. What do I want? What do I expect? And when it doesn't present like that, resisting, and it causes suffering. And so, you know, when you're talking about flow, this is what flow is and surrender. Surrender is the is not giving up. It's actually being open to accepting life as it is. It doesn't mean not changing things. I mean, you know, if something's not working for you and it's within your your field to change it, yeah, you change it fully. Yeah, there's a stoic um, prayer that I, I use with within the group and I throw out on top of all the uh, the people I'm working with, which is something along the lines of God grant uh, us the serenity to accept the things we can't change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. And that's always resonated with me very deeply because it makes so much sense. It's as clear as it can be. How much do we resist? I mean, the average human mind, how much are we resisting things that are outside of our control? This is part of what you learn when you start meditating, right? When you first learn to meditate, people spend so much they expend so much energy resisting their thoughts, which are a natural part of the mind, thinking something's going wrong because they're having thoughts, resisting outside noises like 
you know, if you if I resist it enough, the lawnmower will stop. No, it won't. <laughs> it's just going to keep going. And so, so part of what we learn through the practice is is how to accept what's actually going on. And as soon as we surrender, the thoughts don't are no longer a problem. The the noises are no longer a problem. Um, we can that change. takes some training, though. It does. I think meditation takes training. Eventually, you know, people can start. Ideally, like anything, you get a teacher. It's like with you, you know, athletes can get so far. And then it's very useful to have a guide. Same with meditation. I think a lot of people struggle because they've never been trained. So they think it's hard, but they're just not doing it properly. And again, it's it's one of those things where if it's not, like Marcus has said, if you get to the level that you can get to and you just don't feel like you're breaking through, it's it's not about giving up. It's about how do I then navigate up, round, under, through. And the, if some most of the time the only way to do that is with someone who's either done it or is experienced in it. And as we said, that's why mentors, coaches, teachers exist. The good ones do because they want to see you continue on your path. And just because a boulder's in the way, that doesn't mean that's not the right path. It just means that you need to see the challenges and opportunities. Right. The boulder is the path. This is the thing. Like whatever that's the ob- the obstacles of the path, yeah. so it's just it's just steering it in a different direction. So, and the the thing I loved about what you said in terms of our feeble human mind, our conditioned mind. If we look around us, even now, there's creation in all of its or if we think that as a, as a single mechanism of that creation that we can create something or control something that's as powerful and as beautiful as that, then we are way too into our own self and head. And it's about connecting with its power and almost, as you said, surrendering. Have you read the book, The Surrender Experiment? Mm-hmm. Everybody should out there should read them. It's an actually fascinating read. Yeah, and The Untethered Soul, which yes. is probably worth reading first and then reading The Surrender Experiment to understand how his life journey got him to that kind of spiritual book. But, yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, Michael Singer, I mean, because I, I, I've only read half The Untethered Souls halfway through, but I started with the um, the original, well, the second part of the, of the book, um, The Surrender Experiment, and I just found it fascinating because everyone kept telling me to read it. And I remember, and this is the thing with books, and I'm, I'll see if you agree, but I picked it up and I read it a couple of pages. I was like, no, nah, this was a few years ago, not my time. And then I picked it up maybe – six to eight months ago and finish it within nine days. And I was just like, give it, I bought, I'm buying it for people I'm working with. I'm blind, collab, I'm just, this book is one of those things that it's like a must read for everybody. Do you have any other must reads? I mean, other than super deep meditation or? There's so many good books, but I think ultimately you want to be practicing first. And I think this is why when you picked it up seven years ago, it probably didn't connect. I'm guessing uh, now that you're having these experiences, it makes sense to you. I remember I read Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now, which is another really good read, but I read it before I had a practice and it didn't really make much sense to me. I did, I did, didn't connect with it. And then as soon as I learned to meditate and I read it, I was kind of having transcendent, deep experiences with every paragraph. It took me forever to read it because I'd read a paragraph and I'd just close my eyes and I'd be in that space because, you know, the words of any of these, these um, master teachers are only ever a signpost to the experience. And so if you, if, you know, if you're getting stuck on the level of the word, it's like, you know, if you think that, that love is the word love, you're sadly mistaken. The word love is a kind of symbolic word that opens us up to, to, you know, the underlying nature of life. Um, so, you know, the, the words are a signpost, but when you're having those experiences or when your consciousness is ready to receive that knowledge, it'll be taken on a different level. What you find with deep knowledge in general is you can keep revisiting it later on and there'll be more depth as well because 
like everything in life, it's meeting, we're meeting it at our particular state of consciousness. So as our consciousness evolves and expands, then the knowledge will land deeper as well. So it's really interesting listening to kind of teachers like my teacher, I'll hear something once and then three years later, I'll hear the same talk, a very similar talk, and it'll be completely different. It'll land completely differently. And in a similar way, we're like really emotive, evocative film into the wild, as an example, continues to keep on giving through the stages of your life. As you said, it's it's the writing in that, and it is the writing. You know, it's obviously the visual, but more so the writing, the sage-like philosophy from Eckhart or from you know, you know, Sean Penn, who um, you know, and John Krakow or whoever it might be, Michael Singer, creates these passages or these these moments that, and again, words are just as you said, labels for things that you feel, right? And I want to bring that back to your values because I think values, again, are just labels for feelings or emotions that we feel about something specific. So passion obviously evokes some sort of feeling within you, the word adventure, the same sort of thing. Do you have specific values that are you um, hold yourself to or have you, is it a little bit more free than that? I'm sure we could like mine them. They're there, but I don't, I've never really kind of, um, and this is not to say that this is not to suggest that it's not a useful practice for people, but I've never really felt that inspired to kind of like write down my values and purpose. I've kind of, as I said, I've worked more with this idea of, of my purpose just kind of flowing through me, being open to it. But, you know, I guess you, I mean, my values like love, family, community connection, um, you know, I, I definitely value um, value my own sort of soul evolutionary journey as a, as a kind of primary value. Understanding that everything kind of flows out of my state of consciousness, that all of my all of my capacity to to give love and receive love flows from that state. Um, I'm you know really interested in in you know working in just my in some tiny little way to to help um, awaken people to their own kind of um, evolutionary journey and to, you know, for each of us like as little drops in the ocean to kind of change change our society, change the way we live, go back to more of a, a kind, compassionate, loving society. Potentially what are the hindrances? What are the, the, the things that are stopping us from doing that? In current society, I just think we're we're be, it's not an easy. I, I mean, I'll just go off the top of my head. It's not the easiest answer, but my I guess what comes to me immediately is a kind of um, social conditioning and hypnosis around our um, you know our in- individualism. Something that's kind of come maybe post Second World War, and you know through the kind of like cultural revolution of the sixties in America and around spreading around the world. This idea of like the of the individual above all else. That I feel like we um, we're sort of stuck in that. Like, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And I think there's also a deeper kind of problem with patriarchy. I think that the repression of the of the divine feminine that that exists across our culture and across our religions, and the kind of burying of that of that um, that side of things. And this is what we're seeing now: this this huge and beautiful rise of the powerful female, powerful feminine, and that divine feminine. I and mean, that's in us as well. It's not just. It's not. Um, restricted to gender it's a balance of masculine feminine inside of all of us but i think that i think that we've been in this kind of just stuck in this cultural conditioning of kind of like uh ruling over nature 
taking what we can from it for ourselves and for our own benefit, making, you know, creating power, power and money for ourselves, for our own benefit at the expense of, of everyone else. And it's kind of glorified. It's glorified in our in our culture. All many of our cultural icons are, are, you know, are people that have done that. You know, and this is what kids are growing up watching. You know, this whole kind of desire to be like some sort of, you know, YouTube or, or um, you know, some sort of social media star. And it's like it's all this kind of individualism. And I think so. What's rising? What I feel is rising is this is this, you know, this sense of being inter- interconnected and. There's unity between all beings and not just human beings, like all, like the entire intergalactic universe, (laughs) entire this planet being a living being in in herself and then the whole universe being living that we are, we aren't separate from that. No matter what, no matter how much we try to control that, all that's, all that's come out of that is, is the destruction of the environment. I think what I'm drawing from that is the, is the competition that it feels like everybody's competing against one another for power, for space, for status, for money, for the comparative narrative, you know, which the keeping up with the Joneses or, uh, again, social media is a huge thing. She looks like this or he has this or that's more followers than I do or whatever it might be. That competition then is glorified and it has been since we were kids because, and I mean, I'm coaching athletes, the separation between on the field and off the field, like sport is an expression of competition, at its best when done at its best. Mm-hmm. And when an athlete is is within their own self and focusing on how they can perform at their best, not comparing themselves to other athletes on the field and how they're doing and how can I change their performance and control them when I can only control myself. When they're focusing on themselves and their own control and what they can do, that's a really beautiful expression of their own talents and skills and abilities. But when it becomes the comparative narrative or the competition with others, that's when it becomes, as you said, mind down rather than soul up. And that's definitely spilled over into what we now call a society or our community. So potentially what you're saying is removing the need to compete with one another. That we rise collectively, not as individuals. You know, we dropping the idea that if someone else is succeeding, it's it's somehow um, depleting us. Depleting us. Whereas I, I think that that ultimately the reality is like together we rise you know and and this is part of i think what's what i sense you know as as this kind of bubbling up of 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 social change at least what what i feel like needs to happen yeah i mean the when you talk about sport i mean competition doesn't need to be a bad thing it's beautiful in that sport but if someone i feel like you know if an elite athlete is not taking the lessons they're learning from the field into their life then it's kind of useless it's just like kids play you know but it's a beautiful opportunity to explore and express yourself and to learn these lessons in the in the battlefield that then extend into your whole life well competition being challenged and if and if challenge doesn't allow you to express the best in yourself but brings out the worst it's that's no good and this is what i'll I'll always encourage in the athletes in the talent ascension program whether it's one-on-one whatever it might be the focus is always on how can you be at your personal best while celebrating other people's success. And I learned that from a mentor of mine when I was 19, Kevy Guy, because I was a I was a pretty chirpy little athlete in term when I say chirpy, I used to get really and it was all I look back now, it was all fear-based. You know, if I'm not getting into this guy's head, he may be better than me, he might take the position, he may do well, which means, as you said, it's either success or regress. Yeah. So I would try and control the way they played by being 
out of my body and, and competitive and comparative. And it was not until he said, you're going to become the most hated bloke in Sydney, grade cricket, if you do that. And you're missing the point of this whole game, sport. It's, it's about bringing out your best and it's about celebrating the best in others. And in that moment, it was a, like a light went off in my head and I remember it because Ed Cowan now is one of my real, really good mates, test cricket for Australia and stuff. And, I, and he and I went from like, again, I wouldn't say mortal enemies in, on, because, but I was very threatened by him. He's a year younger than I was to super mates because I love seeing him succeed. I love seeing him do well. We used to bat together when so much so that we were connected that we never used to call. We just used to hit it and know like connected because, again, of that fresh. And I, I bring that down to the mentorship from my, from my good friend Kev and I bring it back to what you said before in terms of like the engagement of, of guides, mentors, coaches. They are there to bring out your best, to, to shine a light on the things that, you know, you haven't got the electricity for just yet. They're there to punch that into your system so that you can empower yourself, then empower, it changes your life and empowers others. Mm-hmm. And again, this is what I love about what the Satva Life's doing is that it's doing that for individuals, but also because of social media, it's setting off pings everywhere. Little light bulb moments are coming out just from the way you guys express, do, be what you say you're going to do. And it, I, and again, walking around the community, like I said, there's a very beautiful undertone of of almost gratitude for what you you guys are doing just for our community. And I think that must, and I believe pride's a really good thing. I think it can be very positive. And I think that must fill you with a good sense of pride that I'm doing and, and taking it away from, from the me, but doing good work because I'm being, you're channeling it through that. Oh, for sure. I mean, like what, I, like I always just kind of think what, it's just so grateful to be able to to work. And, and there's such a beautiful community. I mean, everything that you give, you get back tenfold. And so the love that comes back to you, you get the same thing from your your clients, it's um, it's incredible. It's beautiful. You know, you can see, and what you're getting to see is people evolve before your eyes. Like how beautiful, because you're not like you're nothing more than a guide. They have to. All you're doing is shining a light and sort of going, "This is a possible direction," or potentially shining a light on some of the things that are some of the patterns that they can't see for themselves. But in the end, they have to do the work themselves. And you know, it's everyone's own personal journey. But so to to see people kind of really invest deeply in that and to watch people blossom and, and evolve and change is it's incredible. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's amazing. As you said, it's great to, I mean, a great coach will always empower others, you know, plant the seed, give them the water can and say, you do this, this, this will happen, right? It's not about holding the can over and tending to the soil yourself, you know, not enabling poor behaviours but empowering really positive ones. And you mentioned that the love you give, you receive tenfold. And the fact that love being a value of yours, it you send it out a value and it comes back tenfold. So then it's fueling you over and over and over again because it's a value. And I, on a similar sense that if you've got a value of power, for example, you will do things that will evoke a sense of power over somebody else. And that will then, that fear from other people will then fuel you to again, become more powerful in a negative or positive way, depending on what you know, impact that you're having. So it's, and I, because I do a lot of work on values, so I really believe from the work I'm doing to at least highlight the values because the values themselves cause the beliefs and the beliefs cause the habits. With you, you were saying your values, family, intuition, love. These are the things that, as I said, the community are, are shining, mirroring back to you saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for these things. It's great and you're receiving and doing those things. So I would definitely encourage 
even if it's just as, as quickly as you did that, to understand even something that feels right. But you're super in tune. That's a different thing. There's a lot of people who are super highly strung, high-performing, uh, high-intensity that need to come back to a little bit more of that separation of who and what. Totally, and, I, and we do this work with people, you know. That's the thing. Like, depend, it, it can be a very useful step. Even, like, define it, you know, do, do exactly what you do. Like, values, beliefs, purpose can be a very um, powerful thing to define it define at a certain stage of a journey for sure definitely and there's been periods of my life where earlier periods of my life where I've definitely leaned on that as well but it's a fluid thing isn't it because life changes all the time it does it does and, and it evolves and it, and it and it gets greater and you know looking into the future for yourself I mean obviously you're not planning stuff for the business but you know, is there something that you guys are looking forward to, you know, on a personal and professional level? Because you've got a couple of, you know, beautiful family and you've, you know, the potential of, of taking this thing around the world. Who knows? But what are you guys thinking? Immediately I'm looking forward to being able to move my body again after breaking vertebrae in my back. So that's my immediate, like, goal is to, <laughs> is to get, get my body back strong again. It's incredible, you know. You, talk, you sort of mentioned this earlier, like how the body can sometimes forces us to stop. So, you know, I've been in like a period of contemplation at the moment, like forced contemplation for a couple of months with a fractured vertebra in my back. And then we'll see what comes out of that. I, I'm super excited about what life will bring, but I really don't have a plan for what that will be other than to kind of keep doing what we're doing and keep tuning in and listening and taking those creative steps. Um, I just feel like life's an incredible adventure you have no idea what's around the corner. You can plan it as much as you like, but you've got no idea what's actually going to happen. So really, actually, I'm sure you've seen it. Um, I, I, I surprisingly only just watched it yesterday. But I was watching Mark Matthews' documentary, The Other Side of Fear. Um, you seen it? No. I haven't. Well, watch it. It's really cool. Um, he has it. It's, it's kind of um, really amazing. Mark Matthews is a was a big wave surfer. Um, he had this dream, this um, you know, twenty year dream of of being invited to the Eddie Aikawa, the most prestigious invite-only big wave competition at Waimea Bay. Um, he always he had this dream that he was going to win it. You know, this was his, his guiding dream from about 16, I think, from memory. And then in, I think, 2016, there was um, a year of massive swells in Hawaii and he was the fittest he'd ever been. He paddled out at Jaws and he was he had this goal, like, I'm going to get the best wave out here today and I'm going to get an invite to the Eddy. He took off on probably one of the biggest waves you've ever seen anyone catch at Jaw. Air dropped, his board kind of flicked out. He somehow miraculously made it, made it to the bottom and then got run down by like 50 foot of white water, dived forward and ripped his arm out of his socket. Just horrendous, like as bad a shoulder injury as you can have. And, you know, devastated the end of his, his season, the end of his opportunity. And then to cut a kind of long story short, he came back the following year and pretty much one of his first surfs um, had the most horrendous injury to his knee down at a toe session down the south coast of New South Wales, blew his kneecap into pieces and cut an artery, almost lost his leg. They thought for a couple of weeks he was going to lose his leg, lost all movement in his foot, never surf, can, you know, basically you'll never surf again type thing, whole career done. And the story is kind of his, it's a comeback of sorts. You know, he, he manages to paddle back out at Waimea and catch some big waves. His foot barely works. They kind of connected the ligament back and got it moving a little bit. 
I don't know where he's at now. I don't know if he'll, you know, end up surfing giant waves again. But what was really interesting, the outtake of his story, because he's become a public speaker and he's incredibly powerful and transformative in that space. People are just so transfixed by his story. And his biggest fear in life had always been public speaking. Mm -hmm. He was more comfortable taking off on a 50-foot wave than talking in front of people or doing a podcast or something. And now he's totally in that space, changing people's life. But his outtake, so that the movie's cut to a story of him He's basically doing a public speaking seminar somewhere and the, and the movie's cut to that. But the, his outtake at the end that I thought was so beautiful, he said, you know, like the funny thing is I never actually achieved that dream and that was my guiding dream from when I was 16 and it never happened. But I realised that that purpose that I'd created for myself created my life and it was irrele- irrelevant whether I made that dream. Every step I took along the way created the life that I have now and that was the purpose, which kind of gets, it really struck home with me because it gets back to what I was saying to you earlier that purpose is not something we find in some future moment. It's what we find in every moment. Like I think this is the biggest problem we have in life is that we we think our, our life exists somewhere in the future. I'll be happy when I'm in love. I'll be happy when I get that new house. I'll be happy when I move to Byron, when I, whatever you fill in the blanks, we've all been, you know, guilty of this, but we, we get there and we realize that it's the same me that I've taken there. Wherever you go, there you are, you know? And so purpose and meaning, it's, it's literally what you are doing in every moment of your life. This is your purpose. This is your life, this moment. It's all there ever is. Yeah, I, I again, it's just so much. It's singing to me so harmoniously. I, I feel it. I know it. I live it myself. Um, again, I've tapped into that way of thinking some time ago. And there is a, a theory, you know, I think I mentioned to you that second mountain theory, the first mountain for aud- the audience out there, the first mountain being uh, the focus of the feeling of happiness or unhappiness. It's very self-centered, as you said, Mark's journey. I want this goal, I want this goal, it was all about me, I'm coming back for this thing, potentially not listening to the signs after the first injury. And then you go through that valley of shadows if you don't reach your goal like he did or like, as I said, like I didn't, or your valley of transition when you've come down off the mountain through and then you find yourself at the base of another mountain, whichever it is that you choose, and it's what you're seeking then is not the feeling of happiness, you're seeking fulfilment, you're seeking moral joy, which is based in service and he's out there serving others now with his speech, something that he was totally afraid of on the other side of fear, has now become his joy, has now become his love, like you said. And bringing it back to what you've done is that you've tapped into this reservoir, this never-ending reservoir of love being this, the, the center or the cornerstone or whatever you want to call it in terms of it being the reason for your living, loving people, loving your family, loving what you do, loving how you're doing it. And there's such power in that. I, I, I sense, as I said, like as I said, the positive use, the power in just owning love and being love, there's a real a sense of real beauty in that. And I say that when I look at out here at nature, same sort of thing. It's beautiful, but it's powerful, but in a beautiful way. It's not powerful and it's, it's going to overtake me like a tsunami or a cyclone, not that kind of power, but the power that it can do and create and be anything that it wants for as long as it wants because it's tapped into that ever creative moment, as you said, of, of love and, and growing. And that's something to, that really inspires me, as I said, as, a, as another human on this planet or sitting across from you at this table. I really appreciate it. I want to give you a thank you for the way that you and Cass do that and you, you into that, into the family as well and, and into the community. There's a, as I said, there's, there's a real sense of joy and love when, when there's this time is spent with you 
And uh, and um, so, I, again, from my heart to your heart, I do really do appreciate that. I just want to make sure I haven't left anything out here uh, on my, my set of notes. But a question that I like to ask is, and it may summarize where we've been, but if you could go back to your 20-year-old self, what is something you'd tell him to hold on to and what is something you'd tell him to let go of? <laughs> That's such an interesting question. I've been looking back at my 20-year-old self a little bit lately and what I came to realise, on this is probably not going to answer your question, but I, rec- I have this beautiful feeling that my 20-year-old self would be really proud of where I'm at and I, that like really kind of, I don't know, it's a very heart-expanding feeling because I think my 20-year-old self was on a pretty good track it was my 30-year-old self that probably needed some guidance. So I, when I look back at my 20s, because when I first came to this kind of deeper practice, I thought, God, like I was so off the path for so long. Like how did it's taken me 40 years t- to get here? But then in deeper contemplation, I realized that my 20-year-old self was pretty much on the path. I just didn't quite know. Yeah, and I didn't quite know. I didn't have the mentors. I, I feel like back when I was younger, and I'm sure they were around, maybe I just wasn't ready for them, but there wasn't as much of it around. It's like you look at our community now and there's all these incredible people doing incredible work and the the younger you know crew are kind of inspired to learn off people. I just don't feel like I had these elders in my life that could show me the way, like that the only way of being shown was kind of career, you know. And so I got drawn from my you know, my late twenties and I kind of really got drawn into that career and finding purpose and meaning through, you know, the, the, the definition of being a director, you know, this gave me a sense of meaning and identity that felt, you know, it was kind of filling that hole, but it was really shallow. Um, so yeah, I I think my 20 year old self was doing fine. I probably would have just, it would have been kind of good to have a guide there and to actually learn how to create a sustainable practice at that age. But then I also think that, you know, everything in its time, you know, never, always now, never then, you know? And so I think that there was, there was purpose to me being lost as well, because it it helps me as a teacher. Like it really does. I'm, I I teach a lot of people with anxiety. It's something I can relate to when someone rings up and goes, oh, you know, I've been told I should come learn off here just so you know, I've, you know, I've been struggling with anxiety, you know, I can relate to it. They can relate to me. And so there's, you know, we're all, our journey, it's all part, it was all part of the process. So I don't really have any regrets. I kind of, I'm sure I could have done my life better. I would definitely do it better if I went back now as a 20 year old, but I think it was all important. I think the whole thing was important. I think it always is. I think we're always right where we're meant to be. If we, if we'll just awaken enough to take the right next step. Yeah. Like you said, the Mark Matthews story, same thing, everything in, in due time, you know, and we can't force that. We've just got to find the flow of it, find the vein of gold, hit the river and just rather than try and force our way back up it in the direction we think we want to go, feel the way. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, this, um, you get this sense, this understanding, I think, when you have children as well that, you know, that it's hard, it's hard to watch as a parent but you have to let them make their mistakes as well and it makes you realise that how valuable your mistakes were as well and how valuable all these kind of like dead-end roads were because someone can teach you all that but if you were taught all that, really young and and then never experienced any of it that still you haven't really done the research that still be a part of you thinking like well maybe I should be out partying hard like if I missed out on that or you know so I feel like we we kind of will do the research until it's no longer necessary and then we'll guide our way back and so you know that's one of the challenges of being a parent is allowing that space for that to happen when you feel like you could constantly say to them that's not a good idea 
but we all we're all on that journey. Everyone's journey is really different, you know, but we're all on our own unique journey. And and you mentioned that, and that's a, the great sign of a great mentor. One empowerment, you know, it is about saying, you know, obviously giving someone the knowledge, but unless they distill that into some sort of wisdom for themselves and then experience that and then obviously teach that or give that to make them become wise, it's just knowledge, it's just information. Which is another stress, actually. You know, this, this is what we, we live in a culture that's just got endless knowledge, but no wisdom. It's not integrated into the being. It's just in the, on the level of mind and it just becomes another stress. And it's super important, as, as you were saying, is to make sure that you select your mentors, your guides, based on who you feel you want to become or, or, or what potentially you want to, you know, I guess live into, you know, and that's why your relatability you know, with people with anxiety, we took, you know, Guy's been on the podcast, he mentioned you and he mentioned his his battles with anxiety. And it's important to make sure that the relatability in your mentors in terms of like them being a role model for how you want to think, how you want to feel, how you want to be, but understanding that they're going to offer you knowledge and then it's up to you to take that knowledge and distill that into your own wisdom and then express that in your own unique and beautiful way. For sure, that we're not, and that we're not actually following them that path to become them we're we're taking that knowledge creating it on the level uh, transforming it to level of wisdom in us in order for our own unique expression to unfold totally and there's the the saying um you know um standing on the shoulders of giants and you know so you can see further it's the same thing it's about taking the knowledge of a of a trusted mentor coach guide and then using that to express your own self in the to the best of your ability and then having people around you that you can share those experiences with that you love that you care about that are aligned with your values again fantastic and and I will finish off with the uh, another question which is in in potentially well maybe we'll ask the 30 year old self what is something that you at 30 you would have told him to hold on to and let go of hold on to the creativity and let go of the idea that you can find any sort of fulfillment in an, in an external role, you know, that you can actually, that there is any meaning in, in beyond just in, you know, like you can enjoy it, but any sort of deep meaning in like a title, you know, being a director or whatever, it's, it's, it's not the, it's not the road to fulfillment. And if you consider the road to fulfillment, what is, what would that be? Ultimately just realizing your true nature. This is what like, you know, in the, in the kind of more, you know, Eastern traditions, they talk about it as, as enlightenment and awakening. The awakening to what? Well, awakening to your true nature, that the, the realization that we are one, you know, that we're as individual expression on one level and that we're also unified to all of life, you know, as the wave is to the ocean, you know, the wave as an individual wave with its own unique characteristics. And from one wave's point of view to the other, it looks like it's an individual, but you drop down beneath the surface of that wave. And what do you have? You have a unified ocean. And this is what our consciousness is. Um, it, it's a unified field of consciousness and we're a kind of individual expression of that unified field. So fulfillment, I think deep fulfillment comes when you realize your interconnectedness to everything, to life, what's ever going wrong then. You know, if you are, if, if you are life, if life is flowing through you, um, and happening for you, then what, what's ever going wrong? You know, it's the dropping of the victim identity that, that life is happening to me to the realisation, the deep truth that life is ultimately flowing through me. And happening for me. And happening for me. Well, the first step is it's kind of happening for me and then the next deeper step is the realisation that it's actually happening through you. Powerful. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for spending your time with us and the audience and offering the uh, the insights that you have. And I truly hope that um, not only the audience check out what you guys are doing with on, on the Instagram page, but that course just sounds something like something that's going to change a lot of people's lives. So I, I very much applaud that. And and um, anything we can do at MAP or whatever to support that journey, let me know. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great chat. Now, if you're interested to learn how to meditate the Sattva way, some private mentoring, or even to become a meditation teacher, the Sattva Life, Marcus and his beautiful partner, they provide these services at thesattvalife.com. That's T-H-E-S-A-T-T-V-A, life.com.